Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down the history of January 26, what happened and why it stirs up so much pain and controversy. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa De Grazia. And welcome back to another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Rwandri people and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. And that acknowledgement of country is particularly important, always, but with this episode, because we are talking about January 26th, often referred to as Australia Day, Invasion Day, Survival Day, a lot of different things. And the acknowledgement of country basically recognises that we as non-Indigenous Australians are on stolen land and Australia does have a history of dispossession for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and there is a lack of recognition that they are the original inhabitants of this land, which, yeah, goes perfectly with our episode today, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. And the debate definitely heats up around Australia this time of year. But I think um, in this past year, Black Lives Matter has made this more of a constant issue. It got us all thinking about how and why we celebrate Australia Day, whether our values align with our actions. I think a lot of people realised if they were supporting BLM back in June, July, that um, celebrating Australia Day doesn't really coincide with this exactly. Yeah, exactly. And as we are non-Indigenous people, it's really important for us to educate ourselves on the history of this country so that we too can be a part of that movement to close the gap of inequality between us and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. So just a disclaimer, we are not speaking on behalf of First Nations communities or their experiences because it's obviously not within our right or privilege to do so. But this is just us playing our role in creating a fully inclusive Australia. And if we can educate someone a little bit more on January 26th, then I think we'd be pretty happy with that. Totally agreed. Okay, Vanessa, let's start by running through the timeline of the invasion of Australia. Okay, yep. So this is actually a timeline that a lot of people are pretty blurry on. So we're just going to go through it and lay down all the facts. Um, So January 26 marks the arrival of the First Fleet and the establishment of a settlement in Sydney. But there's a whole bunch of important stuff that happened before and after that. So that was in 1788. In 1770, so 18 years earlier, Captain James Cook, the name you probably all know very well, and his ship the Endeavour came from New Zealand. Um, They first sighted Aussie land somewhere on the southeast coast of Victoria, but they didn't dock until they reached what they called Botany Bay and is now the southern suburbs of Sydney, and that was on the 29th of April. When they were in Botany Bay, they ran into the local Gwelagai people. Um, Journal entries from the Endeavour do recall a scuffle, saying bullets were shot, but they went over the warriors' heads. But their descendants refute this and they say that the men were definitely shot and maybe even killed. Yeah, and this really highlighted to me the importance um, of remembering that all historical documents contain some sort of bias depending on who the author is. So it's really important to think why the journals from the Endeavour ship would have avoided claiming that people were shot. Um, Obviously just some food for thought there. Anyway, Captain Cook then claimed the entire east coast of Australia, which he had sailed for Britain, when he reached Possession Island on the north tip of Queensland on the 22nd of August, 1770. And a note on Captain Cook, he died on a beach in Hawaii in 1779, and it was a pretty brutal death um, with either rocks or sharp objects by one of the local Islander Indigenous people. 
And I think it's pretty fitting that the colonizer was murdered by Indigenous people mm. while he was trying to colonize them. Yeah, but also interesting that he wasn't even around for the arrival of the First Fleet. So Britain claimed Australia in 1770, and then what happened? Yeah, so after 1770, Britain was pretty busy. They had the War of American Independence on their hands, which was from 1776 to 1783. But in 1779, they got serious about finding a new penal colony. So the prisons in Britain were super overcrowded and they desperately needed somewhere to ship all the convicts. Obviously, the US was no longer on the table given the whole War of Independence thing. So they started weighing up some options. They had a bunch of places around the world that had been claimed, I say with quotation marks, (laughs) claimed, much like Cook had claimed Australia. So They were tossing up between the West African coast and Australia, but they ultimately chose here because it would be more fertile, handy to have a base in the Southern Hemisphere, and to quote a guy who had been on that 1770 voyage, there would probably be little opposition from the natives. And they ultimately picked Botany Bay as well because it had easy access to New Zealand and it would make a nice port, so a lot of logistical reasons as to why they chose Australia. This first fleet of British convicts consisted of 11 ships, 1,500 people, over half of them were prisoners, which is what ScoMo was referring to earlier last week, but uh, we'll have a discussion about that comment a little bit later on. And the first fleet was led by Admiral Arthur Phillip. They reached Botany Bay on January 18, but they left on January 26 to go a little bit further north to Port Jackson, which is now the present-day Sydney. And they raised a British flag in Sydney Cove and bam, you have the reason why we celebrate Australia Day on January 26. And when they were there, the British encountered the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and relations were said to be friendly but cautious for the first month or two um, before they realised that the white guys were here to stay and the conflict began to bubble up in what became the Frontier Wars. So the Frontier Wars is the combat that ensued between the colonists and local people all around the continent for the next century and then some. And it's estimated that maybe like two to 5,000 colonists died in these wars, but hundreds of thousands of First Nations people. And this is what people are talking about when they say the genocide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, with the invasion. So this period, around 90% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were wiped out due to war and European diseases. The Frontier Wars are worth a few episodes on themselves um, that we definitely plan on getting to, but click through the links that we've dropped in our show notes if you want to know more about them now. So now we understand what happened, let's talk about the date. So why is January 26 so heavily contested? Yeah, so what we just talked about in the previous section, there were a few dates where, you know, British colonists were in and, in and around Australia. Um, so January 26 isn't even that important when we're coming, even when we're coming from the perspective that celebrates British colonialism. There were multiple dates where Australia had been discovered or claimed, but January 26 is just the day that a British flag was stuck onto the soil. Um, and we, have, we haven't actually always celebrated Australia Day on January 26, which prior to this episode, I didn't really know. Yeah, for sure. Some people act like Australia Day is like embedded in our history forever. Like a generational thing, <laughs> like since Federation, but it's really not. It's really not at all. So Sydney and the state of New South Wales have long celebrated this day generally as the marking of their colony, because you have to remember Australia wasn't always one big country. It was separate colonies that acted like countries. Yeah. So this was a big day for them, but 
for the rest of the country, um, not necessarily so. And one of these celebrations that New- the state of New South Wales did was really messed up. So for the 150-year anniversary of that British flag being stuck in the soil, um, Aboriginal people were forced to participate in a reenactment of the landing of the First Fleet um, that day under Captain Arthur Phillip. So Aboriginal people that were living in Sydney had refused to take part. So organisers forcefully brought in men from Menindee, which is in Western New South Wales, and kept them locked up at the Redfern Police Barrack Stables until the reenactment took place. And we've posted a photo of this on our Instagram, and it's really horrific. They basically forced these men to run down the beach as if they were running away from British colonialists, which is actually a contested account in the first place. Yeah, and also reenacting something that caused so much trauma is insensitive, is not even the right word for mm-hmm. it. It's just incomprehensible. In terms of an actual Australia Day, the first one was celebrated on July 30, 1915, which was actually to raise funds for the World War I effort. And in 1916, Australia Day was formalised by the government and moved to July 28. But it wasn't until 1935 that all the states and territories had shifted to celebrate alongside Sydney and New South Wales. And this was when January 26th became the date. Yep, and three years after that, in 1938, the Australian Natives Association, which was a group um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, marked January 26th as a national day of mourning. So the day has been protested almost as long as it's been celebrated, and it only became an official public holiday in 1994. So some of the states didn't actually celebrate it on the 26th, they would celebrate it on the um, last Monday of January. Um, So 1994 is when the actual Australia Day as we know it began. Yep. And that's only 27 years in our, well, since British colonialism, 233-year history. So not that long-standing and something that a lot of people lived without for a long time. I think about that date, my parents would have been 30 years old by the time that that date came in. So it's something that if we've lived without before, we can probably continue to live without, but that's a different discussion. Funnily enough, though, less than 40% of Aussies actually know what happened on January 26th. And this figure is worse for Labor voters, uh, for whom 34% got the answer wrong. And I'll link the study in the show notes, which also gets into what date people think Australia Day should be celebrated. And on a separate note, only 28% of people want to change the date. I saw a great tweet that spoke about this, and it pointed out the fact that Only 40% of people supported Martin Luther King's March on Washington at the time because they thought it wouldn't accomplish anything. So it's an interesting comparison and it prompts the thought of what side of history you want to be on. Mm. And history is only history when it's in the past. So you don't have that benefit to look back on. Um, So you don't know what will eventuate into a massive movement and what won't. Um, But yeah, there's only hindsight to history, but never in the present. For sure. And to quote this First Nations site called Creative Spirits, um, to many Aboriginal Australians, there is little to celebrate and it is a commemoration of a deep loss, loss of their sovereign rights to their land, loss of family, loss of the right to practice their culture. And this quote, I think, is an essence of understanding why so many Australians see the January 26th as Invasion or Survival Day. Okay, Tanya, this is your strength now. It's where your history (laughs) shoes are needed. I loved writing this bit. (laughs) (laughs) And that means it's going to be great. Um, So how has Australia Day been debated or interpreted over time? 
Yep. So when we speak about the conversation of Australia Day and what it all means, we refer to something called the History Wars. Um, And this is the ongoing debate about how British colonisation in Australia has been understood um, or interpreted and what actually happened all those hundreds of years ago. The interpretation of Australia Day has always been an issue, but the History Wars really kicked off in the 80s when Australia was celebrating its bicentenary which means 200-year anniversary, very fancy word. It came into spotlight in the late 90s and early 2000s when Australian historians started criticising each other's interpretation of British settlement. Yeah, and there was a big back and forth between historians about what side of history they wanted to be on. But this whole conversation about how we remember national events was actually sparked by a museum in the United States, and they decided to display the Enola Gay, which is the plane that dropped the first two atomic bombs, as part of an exhibition marking 50 years since the end of World War II. So I guess this whole controversy around this museum in the United States really highlighted the tension between national honour and taking pride in our history versus the truth of history and and the morality behind some of the decisions that were made. And it got people in Australia thinking about how history is remembered and whether we decide to cover up or depict certain events in a different light just to make it, a bit, I guess, a bit more bearable to us and a bit more digestible and acceptable. Yeah, to make ourselves think that our history was better than it was. Yeah. So when it comes to these history wars and the battle between the historians, there are two main camps here. So firstly, you have those who reject the so-called black armband view of history, which was a phrase coined by Australian historian Geoffrey Blaney in 1993. Yeah, and Blaney was very, very big at this point in time as well, and he informed a lot of the Howard's government policy as well. Um, So Blaney essentially argued that Australia's successful beginning, I say that in quotation marks, had been had been ruined by stories of violence and invasion and and Blaney bases his argument off the notion that black armbands have been worn to symbolize like mourning or grief or loss. Um, so in his infamous 1993 lecture, Blaney said that people who take this black armband view of history and only choose to focus on the negative aspects of colonization bring down, you know, the mood and ruin what a great thing British British settlement was for Australia. So he's saying anyone who chooses to focus on that is ruining the spirit of Australia's origin story. And Blaney wasn't the first to echo this sentiment, certainly will not be the last. No. Um, most prolifically, John Howard in 1988 released a policy initiative called Future Directions. So at this point, he was the leader of the coalition, like the Liberal Party, and he released this policy document criticising the way in which Bob Hawke's Labor government spoke about issues, social issues in Australia. And in this document, Howard and his Liberal Party were saddened that Australians had started to feel guilty and ashamed about their past and said that we shouldn't have to apologise for Australia's heritage and history referring to our British colonial heritage and history. Yeah. So you have Blaney's side of the fence that claim that the black armband view of history is bad. And then you have the other side, such as um, historian Manning Clark. He was one of the biggest historians coming into the 80s and 90s, who claimed that we actually needed to start to recognise this violent past to our country. And in 1988, during the debate about Australia's bicentenary, um, Clark published a really famous article on January 25 entitled The Beginning of Wisdom. And he wrote, and I'll include this really great quote, he said, 
Now we are beginning to take the blinkers off our eyes. Now we are ready to face the truth about our past, to acknowledge that the coming of the British was the occasion of three great evils, the violence against the original inhabitants of the country, the violence against the first European labour force in Australia, the convicts, and the violence done to the land itself. And he ends by saying, the rewriting of our past has begun. So basically recognising that perhaps we had our rose-coloured glasses on and we weren't really acknowledging um, the origin of Australia in, in a way that should be. Great quote. Gave me chills. Yeah. Um, Clark also tried to dismiss the belief that the British needed to tame the native inhabitants of this land. He tried to dismantle the notion that Indigenous peoples were barbaric and uncivilised because this was just often used as a justification of British settlement. It wasn't necessarily true. Yeah. And Prime Minister Paul Keating, whose Labor government came to power in 1991, he was really heavily influenced by Manning's work. And he was also heavily influenced by former Labor Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. And if you had listened to our dismissal episode all about Whitlam, we discussed how progressive he was, especially for a prime minister in the 70s. And he championed a lot of social movements in Australia. You know, particularly Gough was really uh, heavily involved in working with Indigenous communities to recognise land rights. Yeah, and Keating took this with him as prime minister. In 1992, he gave a speech in Redfern, which was actually the same suburb that those Aboriginal men from Western New South Wales were housed in 1938 for that reenactment. It's a town in Sydney with a high um, First Nations population. So in this speech, he very explicitly addressed Australia's wrongdoings in the past. Um, To quote him, he said, We took the traditional lands, we brought the diseases, we committed the murders, we took the children from their mothers. It was our ignorance and our prejudice. Yeah, and that sort of past had never been acknowledged by a Prime Minister like that before. Even Kevin Rudd's 2007 Sorry speech, which we were alive for and we, I'm sure, watched as we were in primary school, it never placed that much responsibility on British settlers and past Australian leaders for the pain and trauma caused to Australian and Torres Strait Islander populations. Yeah, for sure. But then all of this switched back in um, 1996 when John Howard became the Prime Minister. So remember from before that Howard was a part of Blaney's camp of people who really wanted to look at Australia's past in a positive light. And in 1996, Howard said that I profoundly reject the black armband view of Australian history. I believe that like any other nation, we have black marks upon our history, but amongst the nations of the world, we have a remarkably positive history. The Australian achievement has been a heroic one, a courageous one, and a humanitarian one. Uh, It's a very loaded statement. And at that point in time, John Howard even criticised a lot of school curricula, saying that it was teaching young people the wrong things about Australian history and that we needed to focus on the good aspects of Australian history. And, you know, this this topic becomes more and more politicised as each new Prime Minister comes to the surface. You know, we even had comments last week from Scott Morrison about how January 26 wasn't a flash day for the First Fleet either. And it really shows where some of our leaders currently stand on the issue. I have two points on that. The first one being John Howard also was the Prime Minister that made gay marriage illegal when it wasn't illegal in the first place. He was very, very conservative. Yeah. Second point about ScoMo's tweet. For sure what he said about it not being a flash day for most of the First Fleet either is absolutely true. I mean, half of those people were convicts. They were probably really scared. They were going halfway around the world and no one's denying that. But 
to place the importance on those 750 convicts in the face of hundreds of thousands of deaths through purposeful genocide is just so ridiculously tone deaf and completely undermines all of the struggle and all of the trauma that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander have been through and continue to go through. And that was the problem with that tweet, if anybody was wondering. (laughs) You said that amazingly. Okay, so to end off, what can we all do about Australia Day? What should our listeners try to engage in or what actions should they partake in? So we're going to give the advice that we always give. Mm. (laughs) Which is the whole premise of this podcast. (laughs) Broken records, but in a good way. The best course of action is to always inform yourself. So use the resources that are available at your disposal. And in this case, an important resource is getting something directly from the voice of an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander representative, elder, someone in the community, finding out about the events during the invasion that happened in your area is also really important. Makes it a lot more real when it's in your specific area or you find out why some figures are, I guess, heralded. You know, we have statues of Batman in Melbourne when really Batman was part of this invasion. So it's really interesting um, to learn about who we actually herald in the community and why. Yeah, for sure. And when we say um, using the voices that you have access to, we don't mean messaging a random First Nations person you know on Instagram. You know, they don't... It's not their responsibility. Yeah, it's not their responsibility. Um, But there are so many pages that actively post things and actively pushing out information like that. Um, So look for those ones. Mm. You can also look back at historical documents too, but just note a few issues here. One, like I said before, historical historical documents always contain some sort of bias. So any British or Australian documents, especially parliamentary documents about settlement need to be read very critically and with a very careful eye. So just noting what they're including, what they're not saying and how they're depicting the relationships between the colonists and the First Nations peoples. And looking back on historical documents is also slightly problematic because two, um, there is a large an extensive oral tradition within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, which means that there are not a lot of written sources available, which is hence, you know, highlights the importance of talking to elders or people within the community because they're the ones that hold all the knowledge. But also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been historically excluded from historical accounts, documents. So it's very easy um, for their perspective to not even be recognised whatsoever. So that's why you always need to read critically whose um, perspective is being included and what's not being said is always an important question to ask. It shocked me a little even when researching for this episode um, how many websites just turned up um, documents that were diary entries from Captain Cook's ship Yeah, <laughs> and, and nothing so, else. Yeah, and it's yeah. obviously he wrote those journals because someone would see them eventually. It's like how does he want to be looked back on as a sailor, as a colonist? So yeah. very important to read critically, I'd say. For sure. And um, we included them in last week's show notes, but we'll include them again. Some Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander voices that we personally follow on Instagram. And they're not all doom and gloom. Um, like they're not all really serious political accounts that only talk about the tragedy of our history. Some of these accounts recount what it means to be Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander in today's Australia in a comic kind of way. You know, it's enjoyable content, especially Emily. Um, yeah. Yeah, Dartham123. We appreciate a few of her TikToks. We love her. Um, Yeah, on TikTok, she's so great. I love seeing her reply to the racist trolls so intelligently and hilariously. And one of the great things about social media is that we can open ourselves up to things and people that we just may not have exposure to otherwise. 
And it's not just about putting on this serious front of, I need to educate myself. Um, It's generally about diversifying your feeds and in turn, diversifying how you perceive the world around you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and now it's time for our recommendation. So besides what we just said about what you can do, Vanessa, what other resources do you have for our listeners today? So I have a piece from Australian Geographic that's about the fact that Aboriginal Australians are one of the world's oldest living cultures. They're not sure if it's the oldest or if it's a culture in Central Africa, but still an amazing amazing feat seeing as the culture in Central Africa would have been there since the beginning, whereas Aboriginal Australians migrated over thousands and thousands of years through Europe and through Asia. So Aboriginal Australians reached um, the continent at least 24,000 years before the wave of migration that populated today's Indigenous people of Europe and Asia, which is crazy Um, and something to be so proud of. So definitely check that out. I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. I've got two today, one being an interactive map by the Guardian that outlines the frontier wars between 1788 and 1928. This gives you an insight into where conflict happened after British settlement, Um, the stories behind each conflict as well. So they do contain some really prolific um, stories about people or um, important figures and who was involved. My second one is uh, a book, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be familiar with, with it is one of I guess the more popular ones would you say I mean I haven't read it but yeah. I plan to and yes yeah. I've heard it's, of it it's, a lot. I've always seen it on the list of you know great Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander books to read and I've read it um Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe and this debunks the whole myth that First Nations people were savages or they were uncivilized um and instead Pascoe Go argues that these communities, these original inhabitants of Australia, had very intricate and innovative methods of agriculture and that they were very established communities. They weren't just running around Australia, like having no connection to the land. They were actually very established um, and they had very distinct social relations. So that also works against that whole myth that, you know. The hunter-gatherer myth. Yeah, and that the British needed to like tame people or they needed to like come over and take control and make Australia better when really these communities had really established ways of living. I'm keen to read that myself and undo all that primary school education. Yeah, definitely. And that's it from us today. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this very important episode, I would say. Let us know what you think. We're interested to hear your thoughts, especially as the debate around January 26 does heat up. For sure. And in the meantime, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Explained Pod. As always, all the info is in the show notes for you to check out. See you next week. Bye. Bye.